Please be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. We are studying the Gospel of John, or we have been for some time during the normal times of the year, not uh, in the summertime for the most part. Uh, but uh, we are now in what is in, in the, kind of the middle or moving toward the end of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. The Last Supper has already taken place. Jesus is spending time with his disciples only hours before he will be arrested and crucified. And he is sharing somewhat of last-minute instructions, telling them what to expect, and then helping them to see the promises that his whole life gives to those who are the follower, his followers, both to those disciples and to the ones who would come after him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 16. We'll begin our reading in verse 16 and read through verse 24. Hear the word of God. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we do come, and as an expression of our, our worship, we want to hear you, that you might form us in mind, in heart, and therefore in life. We want to hear you, that we may have our lives offered to you as worship, as we live in accordance with what you have shown us. And so now we give our ears to you, and give our minds, but pray that you would open our hearts. For apart from your work, the Spirit at work within us, we may learn, but never truly understand. So, Lord, be at work in us. Renew us. We may find the full joy that you promise and that is found in you. This we pray to the glory of your name. 
for our benefit. In Christ Jesus. Amen. We all want it. We're all hardwired to pursue it. In fact, the old French philosopher Blaise Pascal has said that everything that we do is in order to obtain it. What I mean is we all desire joy. Listen to what Pascal says. All men seek happiness or joy without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. They will never make the smallest move, but with this as its goal. This is the motive of all actions of all men, even those who contemplate suicide. What he's saying is something that's very profound. Joy is the object of everything that we do. Most of us are conscious of that. We do what will bring us the most enjoyment. And then others may not be as conscious of this, is that we recognize that just unbridled selfishness may not be what is best for us. And so we are more self-disciplined in certain areas. But why are we more self-disciplined? Well, because we are of the conviction that if we are more self-disciplined and forsake some simple present joys, that we will have greater joy in whatever the result is of our self-discipline. And he even speaks of those who are wrestling with whether it's mental health or emotional health uh, disorders. When he says, it is even the goal of the one who contemplates suicide or anything else that would be self-harming because of the hardship in their life, because of their uh, distraught thinking, they're feeling that some self-harm or even ending life would bring them more joy than whatever it is they are presently experiencing. Joy is something that we all desire. Joy is something that we all want. We all pursue it. And yet most of us have found it quite fleeting. We've experienced it, we've tasted it, but it doesn't seem to last long enough because it seems like it's here and then sometimes gone. Even when we've had those periods where joy has marked seasons in our life longer than what we normally experience, it still seems to go away all too soon. Not only is it fickle, joy also uh, fleeting, it also seems to be somewhat fickle because we're not even certain as to why we're not feeling the same joy that we were feeling yesterday or the day before. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. It just doesn't seem to be a constancy. All we know is that we desire it, we've tasted it, we want it again. It may be a surprise to some of us to recognize in Jesus' words, he's telling us that joy is actually a God-given gift. C.S. Lewis pointed out very succinctly when he says that Joy is the serious business of heaven. And that's exactly what business Jesus is engaged in as he's speaking with his disciples here in the text that we have before us. It's a rather odd kind of conversation if you think about it, if you were part of the conversation. Jesus had recently just told them that he's going to go away. He could see the effect that that had on his disciples, that it was a kick in the gut. They were saddened. They were experiencing sorrow. They were also dealing with confusion. 
And the fact that Jesus says, not only am I going away, it's better for you that I go away than if I was to stay here. That made no sense to them whatsoever. We have the benefit of history to look back. But if you were in that conversation and you'd been following Jesus and you'd pledged your life, literally, you were following him, forsaking pretty much everything else, the prospects and job, because you believed fully in him that not only did he have the way, uh, but that he was the Messiah, the one that God had sent to be the deliverer of his people, the promise to all of the world. And now before you see a whole lot change, you've seen a whole lot of things. But before anything has really significantly changed, he says he's going away and you're going to be better off for it. That would make no sense whatsoever. So Jesus recognizing that they were confused and they were saddened that their friend was going away and uh, the investment that they had made in him seemed to be paying off nothing or very little. He speaks to them in a way that almost sounds like a riddle. In a little while, you won't see me anymore. And in a little while, you will see me again. It's kind of like, now you see me, now you don't. Um, and, and that's all he says. And John records the response of the disciples at that point, and we can say in short, it didn't help them much. They're scratching their head, and they look at each other, and they say, what in the world does he mean by this? You'll see me, and you won't see me. And, and, and in a literary way, John not only says that they were crushed, but he repeats it. It really shows the intensity of their perplexity because and he doesn't only just say, so they asked each other this, but he repeats the fact that they were asking one another. So apparently they were asking each other and they just, nobody had the answer. Nobody understood what it is that Jesus is speaking to them. Now we have the benefit in John's hindsight and we recognize that Jesus was speaking of them to them about the whole idea that joy would be theirs, that he would turn their sorrow, their sadness, their confusion, he would transform all of that into joy, and that even the sadness and the circumstances that were causing their sadness, is, it's not a matter that those are going to go away, but that God was going to redeem those things, and through that process of their sorrow and their suffering, joy would be born in their lives. we look at this passage, we see three things that we want to look at that Jesus is helping us to understand. First is that there is a promise of joy. That all promise is ultimately found in the reality of the gospel. Second, we see that there is a process of joy. And then finally, we see that there is a permanence to that joy. So we begin looking at the whole idea of the, of the promise of joy. And we see that in the words that Jesus seems to be speaking so cryptically to his disciples. Even if they weren't getting it at the time, we have an opportunity to understand here today. And and so we need to note first that there are two little whiles he's speaking of here. In a little while, you won't see me. In a little while, you will see me. And this is so significant, the whole idea of a little while, it's repeated throughout this passage over and over and over again. And they even asked themselves, what's a little while mean? I'm sure that part of their question was, how long is a little while? But I think they were asking the bigger question as well as what is a little, what does he mean by that? He keeps saying these things. If you haven't already noticed, the first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus tells us that the first little while, you won't see me. Speaking of his upcoming death, it was only hours from the cross. 
Jesus says as he's speaking to them, you will not see me. And then in verse 20, he elaborates when he's explaining to them what it is that he means, you will weep and you will lament. It's referring to the fact that they will see Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried. He's gone. And with him buried, so are their hopes. And he says, and the world will rejoice. You're going to be sad, but the world's going to rejoice. And it's an indication in some senses that the world that has hated him, the world that is at odds with him, the world that is rebelling against him because he is the physical expression, he is God incarnate, the world who has hated him, when he is out of our hair, then we can rejoice. At least the world would rejoice. That's, that's the implication that Jesus is making here. He's speaking quite evidently about his death. And if he's speaking about his death in the first little while, then it's obvious that the second little while, you will see me again. He's speaking of three days after. He will rise again in the resurrection. And Jesus says, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And he's speaking of the sorrow that they would have as friends who had lost one, not only one who had gone away, but one who was now dead. It's possible that in those three days, they weren't really aware. They thought maybe Jesus was going on a trip somewhere. He was going to go away. Now he's not even going to get to go away because he's gone and he's gone for good. That's what death does. And yet in their sorrow, when he comes back, certainly they would be stunned. And yet they would rejoice. And we see their reaction. John records it in chapter 20. We won't turn to it. But, and he says they, they were overwhelmed with joy at seeing their friend again. He's gone. And now, against all possibilities, he is back. The, what they were feeling must be absolutely indescribable. But even more reason for them to be overwhelmed with joy than the fact that their friend has returned and that they're now seeing him again. It's because when he came back, little by little it would dawn on them that everything that he had promised had come to fruition. Everything that they had hoped was real. Everything that he had accomplished through his death was secured and guaranteed stands and delivered through the resurrection. He had proven that his claims were true from the very beginning. Not only the promises, but his declaration that he is God. Over and over again, he would make that in very subtle ways, ways that we look back in history, not part of that culture, and we might think, well, what's the big deal there? And then we have a world, including some churches, claiming that Jesus never claimed to be God. And yet the people of his day recognized quite clearly he was making this claim and charged him with blasphemy and the punishment for blasphemy was death. But he had also promised that he was going to bring about reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins. This was accomplished in his death and in his resurrection. See, in the death that brought us sadness, he paid the punishment. But he had he not risen, not only would we have no reason to be assured, but the job would not have been completed. The two things together were necessary. And I believe in John using a play on words when he says that you will be sorry because I die and the world will rejoice 
He's also moving on. The world will rejoice in the end because I have died when I rise again. Because Jesus came and died for the sins of the world. And so when he rose again, the world, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation can celebrate and rejoice died and that he rose again. Jesus, even though he's speaking somewhat cryptically here, he is speaking of every promise that he has made, including the promise that he has just made moments before that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when he had said that it's better for you that I go. But when I go, the Spirit will come and he will dwell in you and among you. See, Jesus is saying you have reason for joy when I die and when I rise because that's what is going to trigger life in this next era, life in the Spirit of God. So we see these words that Jesus is is speaking to his disciples, and as we break them down, we recognize that sorrow can be turned into joy because death and sin were swallowed up by the resurrection. And we need to meditate upon that and remind ourselves of that because there there are some who delight in the resurrection, but the cross not so much. See, the resurrection delivers promises, promises of forgiveness, promises of reconciliation, promises of the Spirit dwelling within us. But the cross is an indication of our sin. It shows us that we weren't nearly as great as we think we are. Somebody had to pay a price for us, and that was what Jesus has done. So we like to focus on the resurrection. The cross just makes us feel bad. On the other hand, there are people who like the idea of the cross, but the resurrection, not so much. See, the cross is a symbol of what the extent of the love that Jesus Christ has for people. And it makes him a, a perfect symbol and an example of one whose life is worthy of, of admiring and emulating. He loves others so much that he's even willing to lay his life down for them. He and in his wisdom of his teaching. The resurrection? Well, that requires us to believe the impossible. That would mean that he is God and his claim to be the exclusive way would have to be taken seriously. And we can't limit ourselves then just to merely his teaching and his example as if he has been sent just for that purpose. We either have to accept him as our redeemer or no matter how well we follow his examples, we still stand against the very purpose of God. Jesus is making some very profound statements even in these very simple riddle-like words. But they are the heart of everything. It's in the understanding of these things that is the key to having the joy that he's promising. It's in the receiving and delighting in these things that will turn the sadness of his, what we see in his life and what we see in our lives of his death and death that affects us all. It's only as we see his death and his resurrection for the purpose and all the fruit that is born from that, ultimately which, which of which is, is joy. That makes it the foundation. Joy is a promise of God. It is received through embracing and delighting in the gospel. 
And someone may ask then, well, if joy is a gift of God, why are so many of us so often marked by joylessness? I think that Jesus, in the illustration that he moves into, he's explaining a little bit more to his disciples. He's telling us that while joy is a gift of God, the, the blossoming of joy is comes about through a process. And so we now look at not just the promise of joy, but the process of joy we see in verses 21 and 22. And in these verses, Jesus tells a story, which again, I, I, I try to put myself in the situation of sitting there that day. I'm still confused about everything he said before. Now he's speaking in riddles, and now he's talking about some woman giving birth. I mean, if you're in that moment and you only have seconds to try to grasp this, and you're already confused, and you're already heartbroken, and you know, it's already late at night, I, I can it just, the disciples certainly must, be, must have been perplexed. But what we see is quite profound. But Jesus gives us this illustration, and so I'm just going to read it for him. It's certainly an image that is not unfamiliar to us. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so he's presenting an everyday picture, something that is very common. Uh, about a, a woman who is, is pregnant and who has come to her, her delivery time and she is about to deliver. Now, one of the things that we can take from this from the very beginning is that it eradicates any idea that Jesus is ever promising that those who belong to him, those who are followers, are going to be exempt from pain in this life. From what I'm told, giving birth is painful. I've been told that at least three times. <laughs> I'm reminded that I do not understand and that I never will. And so I'm just going to take that word, uh, take the word for it. But if the intensity of the squeezing of my hand and the pain that I had from someone who is, you know, not a power lifter, but, uh, you know, puts me to my knees is any indication, even a fraction of the pain that's experienced, I think we can all agree that Jesus is giving an adequate illustration here, that there's pain that's involved. But he's saying that those who are his followers will experience in this life, maybe not that kind of physical pain, but in some cases it, it could be, but we experience pain in this life. It's, he's not in any way saying, hey, if you're my follower, it's all gone. He's saying it, our life is like this. And he was speaking to the disciples because they were experiencing emotional pain at, at this point in time. And he says that, it's, uh, that, that the process toward joy is like a mother who's delivering a child who has experienced ser serious pains. And the closer she is coming to giving birth, the more intense and frequent are the contractions, the, the, the more intense is the pain. But then he says, but once the baby is born, all of that pain, which is very real, is overshadowed by the joy of the child that is now placed in her arms. I've had the privilege of visiting many new mothers in the hospital. Praying for them and for the newborn children. Some look like they've been in a war. Some, I assume, are hated by most of the other women because they look like they had just taken a walk on a warm day. But every one of them has experienced that pain. But you know what I have never once heard from any of those mothers? Never once has anybody said, 
you know the pain I just went through? It's just not worth it. I've never once heard that. Because their eyes and their hearts are focused on that child that is either in her arms or in the crib that is often next to her. It doesn't eliminate the pain. It doesn't make it any less real, but it is put in a different perspective. It is overshadowed by joy, that the pain has now blossomed into a joy, and that is a fullness of life. It's not just the contrast. I was in pain, and now I'm not in pain, and I have joy, but it is the blooming. It is the blossoming. It is the birth of joy, and Jesus is saying through this illustration, this is the way it works in all of our lives. See, the gift of joy comes from God, and it comes through the appreciation of the, uh, of the gospel and, and apprehension of that, but we all experience pain in this life. In fact, it's the pain and the suffering that breaks us, that makes us ready to receive the good news of the hope that Jesus is giving us, that his death and his resurrection secure. Jesus is telling us that it's not that we who as his followers are ever going to be exempt from pain, but that the good news of what he has accomplished is so much greater, that the new life that he has birthed in us is so much greater, that it will overshadow the reality of pain that we experience in our circumstances. And Jesus says, so you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one can take that joy from you. So we've seen that there's a promise of joy. We have seen that there is also a process to joy being birthed in our lives that is not exempt from, but the joy that is ours in the new life that is now ours with the Spirit dwelling within us overshadows. And if we're not experiencing that, it's, it, it, it's not because it's not true. It's because we're still in that process so that we taste the joy, but it will continue to bring birth. But we see in Jesus' statement here, no one will take it from you. So it's not just about the promise, and it's not just about the process, but he's making a promise that there's going to be a permanence to that joy. No one can take your joy from you. Which really begs the question for us this as well, if my joy can't be taken, then why do I experience joylessness? And I think the simple answer we would say is this, is that while our joy can't be taken, we can shove it or neglect it. It would be akin to the mother focusing only on her pain and not on the child that is hers. We do that in a, in a sense as well spiritually when we focus so much on our circumstances that that which is very real but in a different dimension in a spiritual way is not first and foremost what we are focused on. Jonah offered wisdom that I think applies to this kind of, that describes the circumstance. Jonah had some time to think for a few days when he was um, out to sea. Um, under the sea, however you want to put that. And he has this profound thought. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. 
And he's not talking about a loss of salvation here. He still believes in God. In fact, he believes he's in present circumstance because he had been running from God. He didn't know how this was going to turn out. And so, but he still had reason for hope uh, to, to belong to God. But let's just say he was recognizing these were not optimal circumstances, being in the belly of a fish under the sea, not knowing how long he would be there or if he would ever get out. And he realized that it's the fact that he focused on his circumstances, that he focused on, in his case, his national pride, his religious heritage, uh, and the, admin, uh, the, the antagonism that his people had with the people that God wanted to send him to, and his unwillingness to go to a people who were different because he was focused so much on things that were not ultimate spiritual, he ended up in circumstances that he would rather not have been. And he's thinking about that, and he's realized, I'm forfeiting a grace that could have been mine. In other words, things that could have been better. He didn't understand that God was still at work and he was experiencing a grace and that through him that we would experience a grace and that he was symbolic of a grace that Jesus Christ himself was going to experience. But the principle was nevertheless true. When we ask ourselves, why are we not experiencing joy? It's because, at least for those who are believers, it's because we are far more in tune with the circumstances and the pain than we are in the promise that has been delivered to us and that will be ours in the future. The psalmist in Psalm 42 also is conscious of this, but he, he has an illustration for most of us about the fact that we go through these periods. He's somebody who you can tell as he's reading this and his own confession, and he's speaking to himself, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? He's asking, what's, what's the problem with me? Why am I joyless right now? And that becomes a repeated refrain throughout the psalm. And he goes through and he's starting to think about that. And he comes to the conclusion and he reminds himself, what we would say is a, an expression of preaching the gospel to himself, reminding himself of all that God had promised. Hope in the Lord, for I shall again praise him. And that, those two lines are refrained throughout as he's going through what's going on in his mind. But he also confesses to the circumstances that are around him that are bugging him that have detracted, distracted him from seeing the reality of God. It's not that these things are not painful, and it's not that he is, has, doesn't have reason to be saddened, but he has lost the focus on that which is even greater, that would bring joy, even if the circumstances themselves wouldn't seem to dictate that. Jesus says, as he comes to the end of the passage we're looking at today, He's saying, look, in that day, and he's speaking of a day that will come after the resurrection, and I believe really he's speaking of the day after the ascension, but when the Spirit comes, in that day, the period that began with Jesus' ascension, and, or at least with Pentecost, and then we are in today. When that day comes, Jesus is speaking to us, and that there is a promise. He's saying a couple of things. One, you won't need to go through me anymore. I'll just, let me read it. In verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. And there what I think he's telling us is that the mission was accomplished. When he has ascended, the Spirit is dwelling within all who believe. It's, the Spirit is able to do everything that the disciples were totally depending on Jesus to do. Jesus has accomplished everything he was intending to do. Now the Spirit comes and reminds us of what Jesus has accomplished. And the Spirit bears the fruit in the lives of his people. You won't ask me for things anymore. It's a reminder that we also have now direct access to the Father. 
Jesus is the mediator who has reconciled us to the Father through his death and through the resurrection. But now we, who are believers in Christ, we don't need to constantly go through Jesus. We have direct access to God, to commune with him, to speak with him, to share our hurts, our pains, our hopes, and our prayers. And he speaks in a way that is it's really kind of perplexing in, in some way. Because he said, you can ask anything in my name, you'll receive it. And I wish I could give you a very profound explanation of what this means. But I can't. I'm comforted in the fact that I checked eight renowned scholars, and they didn't give me much of an answer either. But most of us are somewhat skeptical about this statement in some ways, and most of us are, it seems too good to be true, and most of us also seem to have an instinctive understanding. That doesn't mean it can't mean that we can just go ask Jesus for whatever we want and then you know, invoke his name as if it's some kind of magical incantation. Like, yeah, open sesame. See, it, it, yeah, it had the right words. Abracadabra. In Jesus' name. I mean, that would make no sense. And if you are there, I think that you're on the right track. See, in Jesus' name carries a connotation that is more significant than just words that you attach to the end of a prayer and then God, therefore, is obligated because you know the secret words. In Jesus' name is a, a declaration of an authority. Jesus is authority. And if Jesus is the authority that we're declaring, then we are in submission to that authority. We become like ambassadors who are representing something that is greater than themselves. And no ambassador is going to go on behalf of their government and just simply, de- well, I don't want to say that. No good ambassador is going to, I, I'm a little skeptical about a lot of things I'm hearing in the news, but um, no good ambassador is going to go and just declare, this is what I want in the name of whoever it is that he's representing. In fact, wise people on the other end would recognize the character of the one they're representing and might be able to distinguish between what is characteristic for them and what is not characteristic for them. We need to recognize that Jesus using this words in my name. He is opening up the door very wide for a wide range of prayers on almost any subject, any subject. But in my name also gives us very specific directions, which means the prayers that he's speaking of that will be ours are those that are in line with the purpose of Jesus Christ for your growth in his grace and in him, for the advancement of his kingdom and mission, and ultimately for your joy. Jesus says that when we are praying for that and his whole purpose, in reconciling us to the Father and bringing us into connection and opening the door for us to commune with God. All of this is part of a joy that is beyond what we would normally experience, but we might dream for. Jesus says it's yours. And he gives us these promises because he wants his people to be filled with joy. Here and throughout all the scripture, we are reminded yet again we find our greatest joy, not just from him, but in him. I'm just going to finish with this as a reminder. Jesus was speaking of, you will see me in a little, won't see me for a while, and then you will see me in a while. He was speaking of his death and resurrection. His words also apply in a broader sense. 
because Jesus did ascend and we don't see him with our eyes. But in a little while, he will return and we will see him face to face. And then we will know joy. Father, we do thank you for this word, this instruction, and pray that you would help us to understand joy that is a gift from you that you desire for your people to have. That following you is not about sacrifice and solemnity, but opening the door to joy. Help us to understand the causes of our joylessness. We might turn our attention to that which is the source of joy. And open us that we may experience joy, whether it is in the midst of our sorrow or in the midst of overwhelming blessing. Knowing that in each case, you are present, you are at work, and you are giving birth to joy in our lives. We pray this in Christ. Amen.